Roger. Yeah, I think it's pulling the wrong one. I'm just... Okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. There was still a little bit uh, left in the... Okay, don't hold it quite so tight. Okay. 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 Hi! Welcome to the podcast. This is how it's going to start. Roger that. Roger that. We have full uh, incredible liftoff capabilities that we'll be using throughout the show. Uh, please touch down on a Delta Dream in the middle of a uh, boring scene. Uh, extra grass. Roger that. Anomalies ahead of... We're headed to the uh, anomaly, and we're going to do some um, uh, reuptake inhibitors along with a uh, downstream side switcher. Okay, great. You have permission to proceed forward into the uh, sideways zone filter, and we'll begin zone... We're going to begin... We're doing zone shunting now? Well, we have to do it sometime, don't we? We can't just wait all day until these... Well, I, I didn't... I didn't, uh, get, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get clearance. Sorry, you're breaking up there. Uh, well, we, we didn't, uh, 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 you know, I didn't get clearance for that yet. Well, you don't need clearance. I'm giving you clearance right now, okay? So that's... It's me. Welcome to Live to Tape. This is the real beginning now. It's me, your boy, Johnny Pemberton, a.k.a. Jimmy Jackson, a.k.a. Kevin Tipcorn, a.k.a. Old Buttered Popcorn Guy, a.k.a. Smooth... Willie Jackson on the back set of the forward momentum. Here we are, sitting in a very comfortable booth here at the at the executive buffet. It's all your options, all your choices are here in front of you, because Daddy's big red truck is gassed up to the balls, ready to do some donuts. And old Farmer McGivern's back twenty that he has never checks on. It's filled with alfalfa that's since died. So it's, a, it's cool for us to hop in the truck, loaded up on bacon and eggs and cheese grits and some really strong, kind of like jet fuel, leathery coffee. That's us. That's you and me. We just had that fucking kick-ass executive buffet breakfast on the uh, 11th floor of the downtown Atlanta Hyatt. And now we're on Daddy's Big Red Truck and we're tooling. We're straight. We got the dualies turning and we're ripping. Actually, Daddy's Bigger Truck doesn't have dualies. What am I talking about? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It's me. Um, I have to say all that crazy stuff first because that's just how it is. I have a great episode here for, for, here for you today. I'm going to have to gonna tell you it's good because it's great. We have a repeat guest. His name is Adam Lazarus. He's a brilliant uh, scientist and um, biologist and zoologist. He's, a, he's an ant guy. He's a big-time ant guy. He's my ant guy. He's come back, and this time I went to his place, and we talked about more incredible, fascinating stuff about the insect universe. And what you think about it, it's basically the same as our universe. We're the same. We're all the same here. We all live in the same place. So you're going to love this episode. Also, uh, please check me out on Twitch. I'm on Twitch. Uh, a couple nights a week, at least. It's twitch.tv slash justmynipples. That's twitch.tv slash justmynipples, okay? 
you got to check it out. We have a great time there. It's super fun and weird and unique and scary at times and just a real, a real big old blaster. You're going to love hopping in that zone. Otherwise, if you want more stuff, check us out on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash tape. That's patreon.com slash tape. Go ahead. Uh, I have tons of musical mixes up there available for you and all kinds of extra extra goodies for you to uh, just really, really just to really sit in, you know, just really kind of sit in it and soak in the goodness, the fine, the fine goodness, like, like a sweet, crunchy chip you let dissolve in your mouth, because it's your time, it's no one else's time. Otherwise, you know, I'm going to say rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, go ahead and do it. Uh, the episodes have become slightly, uh, the schedule's off a bit due to things outside of my control but we're pumping them out and we've got more guests on the way you're gonna love it here it is my scintillating conversation with my personal ant-man mr adam lazarus blue Blue red blue and red red on one we're sounding good red red red. charlie this saturday sunday only only Only. grave digger 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 and bigfoot (laughs) foot foot it works. <laughs> Adam, welcome back. It's good to talk to you again. Hey, thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah. It's really nice to see you again. We're on a porch. It's a pretty damn sunny day. You, you still, even even in weather like this, and, you know, the days are getting into the mid-70s. This right. is our winter. Uh, yeah. You still sometimes smell uh, fires at night. Yeah, you smell a little fire, or you smell kind of like, I don't know, it's like the type of cold, I guess it is. You smell like you can smell the cold, you know? But... Yeah, I've got your, I'm seeing your peas growing here. That are minor, minor, probably a different variety, but they're already they started flowering about a few about last week. So oh, okay. I have a bunch of peas, but they're this variety that's super heavy called Champion of England. They're like a really big, like a shelling pea as opposed to a oh, snap wow. pea. But yeah, I'm a big fan of those. Oh, neat. Yeah, it's it's really nice to um, just have a bunch of different things growing, and so anytime you want, what I'm trying to do. Because I've been sitting around so much. Oh, really? Why? And I want. <laughs> well, oh, no, I'm just kidding. Like, just yeah. Sitting around. yeah. Like, oh, oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah. Um, is when I get the urge to eat, mm-hmm. um, eat something from the garden. Okay. I'm trying to get into that as a way to still eat whenever I want. Right. But have it be like a fresh thing that was just grown right outside me. What have you been going for mostly when you do that? Um. I see some chard out there, I think, maybe some spinach. We got chard, we got spinach. Um, Chard's hard for me, though. It's so heavy. <laughs> hard to eat? You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of a, it's a dense herb, or a dense, it's a dense uh, leaf, you know? It's not like spinach where it wilts, it's like, it has a lot of fiber. That's true. I mean, some of the leaves on, on the chard, just mm-hmm. a single leaf is a meal. Like, oh, this could be dinner. Yeah, or like, or like a shoe, too. <laughs> Like an improvised shoe, or like an insole, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Be a great insole. <laughs> what, what have you been eating, though? Um, I've been eating uh, the peas, the spinach, um, a lot of the arugula. Oh. Meeting all parts of the arugula. The, Where's the, the arugula? The stem, I don't the see flower. It. A lot of it we just cut down, but um, okay. in the back of the stand there, you can see these tall white flowers. Okay. Oh, so you let, it's already gone to seed? So it's already gone to seed. Yeah, mine's doing that. I think it can. Is it okay to replant it again, you think? Like now, the arugula? Yeah, I think so. You can probably get another flush of it, right? Before it gets hot? I think so. Yeah. Um, we're, also so ex- we're, we're also experimenting with um, just 
cutting the plant off at the base, but leaving the base in and seeing if it regrows oh. as a new arugula. Have you found out what happens yet? No, because we just started. I mean, there are <laughs> leaves starting, but really, so it, it looks promising. But I did with my well, I have a chive plant. I cut it down to the to the ground. Uh-huh. And now it's 100% new. Oh man, it's great. I have all these chives now. It's do crazy. You, do you ever uh, grow something that you think it would be fun to grow, and then when you grow it? It's not, you know, they always talk about homegrown is so good, but yeah. actually it's terrible and it's way better bought from the store. Yeah, I think that's a case with, um, I feel like a lot of times tomatoes, and it's such an obvious thing, but I feel like a lot of the tomatoes I end up growing have like thick skin, <laughs> and uh, at least the ones that are any bigger at all. I also kind of stopped growing tomatoes a few years ago. So I just felt like it's amateur hour. Like everybody grows tomatoes. Why should I grow tomatoes? Cause I hear you. So it's such an obvious thing to grow, but. I'm trying to think. I feel like this, the things I think are the best, though, are the opposite. Where, like, spinach and peas, I've never had spinach or peas other places from the store that are anywhere close to as good as the ones I've grown. Sure. So those are, like, the opposite. But I'm trying to think of other stuff that's, like, I was disappointed by. I don't even know. I've probably just forgotten about it. No, I you hear know? you. Um, we planted ginger last season and grew it all through the winter and stuff. Well, that's different, though. That's so exotic. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't good. It just wasn't remotely as good as just ginger that you buy from the store. And in order to start the ginger, we had to buy ginger from the store yeah. and put it in. Was it not that <laughs> spicy? It wasn't that spicy okay. or that sweet like or that rich. It was wow. like bland, institutionalized ginger. That makes sense. I feel like those tropical stuff like that are there's like a all these things we don't know about that are the people who do it are they're boring to them, but like, oh, you have to have this kind of soil. You have to be, yeah, you're just not going to be able to have grow it in this kind of weather or that kind of thing. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. what it seems like, at least. Hmm. Are, uh, there might be. Did, did I hear that there's uh, gingers that grow in the, in the U.S.? I mean, what do you mean? Like like wild? So I, th- I have a bunch of wild ginger growing in our yard. You do? Yeah. It's, oh, wow. I mean, I don't, I don't think you can eat the roots, but it's called wild ginger. I think it's wild variegated ginger. It's really pretty, hmm. and it all, have, all looks the same. It all has those those sort of like almond shaped leaves with the pointy tip, and the really cool like striations in the leaves and the flowers are these big. Well, there's shell ginger. We have some shell ginger growing. Have these little like um, puka shell like shells that come off of the flowers. It smell like they smell almost like perfumed milk, like really like thin. I don't know. It's one of my favorite smells that exists. Is that smell? Wow. Oh, man. That's that's like the craziness. Also, the, even when you cut the stalks down, they have like a um, – they're super fibrous and crunchy like a sugar cane. Uh-huh. And you can kind of bite them and get like a like a, like a perfumey kind of thing. It's not like ginger ginger. It's like a perfume, like a really light perfume sort of thing where – I don't know. I, I, I just – something about it. It's really it's pretty cool, I think. That sounds it's wonderful. It's easy to grow. Huh. I'm definitely looking to grow sort of exotic things in here. Yeah. Um, we were planning, well, we are planning on starting a pop-up restaurant here. And we want a lot of uh, our dishes to be stuff from the garden. And we want to either go exotic or native. Right. In kinds of the things that we make. So a ginger thing like that sounds really appealing. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, you could put, you could, what's that thing that a lot of isn't that I guess it's a banana leaf, right? Isn't like a lot of Filipino cuisine they serve it in a banana leaf? Yeah, a lot. I, I've definitely seen that. Yeah. 
So what's going on with that piece of wood over there? It looks like ants. Oh, so that is, so the, the last time when I came to your house, I, I think I had a small ant farm in a wooden block. Yeah. And uh, this is going to be a new larger ant farm. Um, I'm going to put these large black car carpenter ants into those uh, pre-made wooden channels. So you did channels. that? Yes. How did you do that? I did that with a Dremel. A Dremel. So you did the work of ants with a Dremel to set them up like for their life. Yeah, and what I'm hoping will happen is that once the ants get settled in there, they'll start chewing and gnawing on the rooms and make it their own. So they'll be yeah. kind of like living art that always changes. Wow, so is that pattern on there? I mean, listeners can't see this. I'll, I'll take a picture of it and post it, but is that pattern of the... Uh, of what you've done there with the Dremel, is that like based on something or is that sort of random? Th that's based on something. So when you open up an, an ant nest, right. you see tunnels uh, in really sort of intricate ways and especially in carpenter ant nests. Um, it's quite amazing really. You can find a log that looks just like a hollow solid log. Right. But then inside, uh, encapsulated in the, in the log are these sheaths and striations of like delicate filamentous wood where so much wood has been chewed away that all the floors and levels of the nest are um, just kind of these thin uh, sheaves of wood. Almost like a like a floor, like a like a uh, like an apartment building or something, huh? But, Almost, thin, but super thin. But super thin, yes. Um, and it's when you knock on a nest like that. Yeah. They, they provide this really neat sort of resonance, and you can hear, it sounds like a didgeridoo. Oh, well, it's hollow. It's hollow. Wow. Um, and all these ants are, are running around on these different little uh, levels and striations. Um, a lot of them, they're actually uh, carpenter ants. They will signal alarm by vibrating their face against the wood. Really? Mm-hmm. Makes it sound sort of like... Oh, my God. And that tells the other ants that something's up. That's crazy. And so they use the whole nest as like a resonance chamber so they can hear it right away. Yep. That's so interesting because I always thought that, I mean, at least and what I've learned from you and otherwise is that ants communicate so much with pheromones. I didn't know they also communicate with sound too. Ants communicate, uh, yes, with pheromones, um, sound, and touch are sort of the three main ways that ants communicate. It feels like it's like too, too many. <laughs> I mean, it's like, how many things can you guys do? <laughs> it's really amazing. There's actually uh, uh, one cool thing that uh, leafcutter ants will do uh -huh. is um, they kind of have this built-in sort of mechanism that actually makes their behaviors a little bit more sustainable uh, in the forest. So if a leafcutter ant finds a leaf that it really likes, it will... Um, vibrate its abdomen it's the abdomen is a series of sort of uh telescoping plates okay and it will uh vibrate extend and retract that telescope of the abdomen really fast and where the armor plates overlap one another there are these uh ridges so that it makes like a yeah noise like one of those like like one of those fish instruments like that exactly called. i was what it's called i'd call it a fish but Exactly like that, and um, that will attract other ants to come and eat from those that same area. So you'll have God. portions of a large tree that are untouched by the leaf cutters, while other parts are can be denuded. Because it's saying that this is a really good area, so focus here. Right, that's Damn. right. 
That's crazy. That stuff when it comes down to the, like the sound. Maybe we talked about this the last time we had a podcast, but um, I was telling you about this thing I saw many, many years ago on some, you know, one of those channels that has animals on it, and they were talking about how there's this beetle in the jungle somewhere in South America that has these two tubes that um, in its abdomen that vibrate. You know that instrument called a cuico? It's that Brazilian instrument. That's, it's like a straw. It's like, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's like that kind of thing where mm. it's like, you know when you have a straw and a drink and you move up and down, it makes uh-huh. that sound? I guess it's real similar to that. It makes a kind of sound like that. And I guess this beetle, the sound is mimicking the sound of an ant that lives nearby too. And the ant feeds off of this plant that has nectar so this plant this plant gives off nectar to, to appease the ants so the ants don't destroy the plant but it also these ants protect the plant from other predators except this one predator this beetle that's allowed to eat there because it tricks the ants into thinking it's one of them by giving off this sound and it's like some sort of weird and there's also some other relationship in there I can't remember it but I remember thinking about that like how they recorded the sound of such a small thing and like i don't know i guess i guess i wonder it makes me wonder like this must exist all uh, there are like, thousands more examples of like a, of uh, insects communicating with um with s- vibrations and sound there are there are thousands of more examples um I, of which i i probably barely scratched the surface but plenty of like the crickets and grasshoppers uh, termites. What's the crickets and grasshoppers ones? Well, um, we hear their sound right. a lot of the time. So some vibrate their legs against their body. Some some vibrate their wings. Mm-hmm. Um, insects will, um, yeah, they'll do a lot of that, vibrating their wings together, vibrating their legs, tapping things. Um, and uh, if you can sort of break the code of that, then you can communicate with the insect. So there, there are even some insects, like uh, there's a type of moth that um, talk about sound. It has uh, sonar-detecting panels on uh-huh. its wings, and it will just be flying around being a moth, and when it gets hit by bat sonar, it Holy just pulls shit. in its wings and falls to the ground. Dude, that's fucking crazy. Because <laughs> it knows, it's almost like a, wow, it's like a radar detector. How, how, Holy how shit. these things evolve is anyone's guess you know yeah. um it, with ants so the the symbioses that ants have like right. you talked about with the plants and the beetles there are countless truly incredible examples of ant symbioses which of course i'd be happy to talk about oh but, i love hearing about but i but, think it's the coolest thing yeah go ahead sorry well i was just gonna say but there at least you know our evolutionary hindsight is always 2020 we can always come up with a good reason for why something happened Right. But at least with ants, one of our good reasons that seems really good is that like there are these whole societies that take in tremendous amounts of resources. So it's like a, a perfect target for symbioses to develop, you might say. Yeah, because it's such a large community, you mean? So it's like a thing. But I have to say that again. So you're saying like because ants are these big communities, they, they develop a symbiosis with things in their environment because there's so many of them yeah so ants um are ubiquitous right they are bringing in uh tons and tons of nutrients um so they're like a very exploitable 
They're highly exploitable. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Uh, they, they can be like a real resource. And then since they're always out in the environment exploring new avenues of food yeah. and stuff, um, sometimes they develop techniques to exploit the environment really well. It's almost like a, an ant colony has like a thriving R and or a thriving ant colony at least has a well-developed R&D department, yeah. always trying new things. That's interesting to think about that. Yeah, because you think about because if you if you find some way to, <clears throat> it's almost like politics or something where you find this. If you have the uh, if you have like the local two seven five on your side or something, you know, if you, as long as you've got the Teamsters vote, then you're you're set. It's almost like having like the Teamsters or something because there's so many of them that they they're they whatever they vote because they vote with their their like bodies and what and their work. So if they choose to invest in whatever you have going as a, as a plant or another animal it means a lot because they they bring so much work and so much there's there's just so much of them, so many of them right yeah and there there are wow. plenty of uh, uh insects that uh do exactly what you just said and you know try to have the ant union vote on their side and yeah. there there are caterpillars that release ant drugs that uh the ants just love and they'll hover all over the caterpillar and lick the drugs as they are exuded from the caterpillar and in turn, guard it against predators. Um, aphids, you probably know about ants and yeah, aphids. Yeah, the herding. Mm-hmm, the herding. Um, and the, then, of course, there are predators that any predator that specializes on eating aphids mm-hmm. also has to specialize in defending itself against ants. Oh, because it's like the cattle. And so they have to, if you're going to eat the cattle, you have to watch out for the, the people who own the cattle. <laughs> exactly. And these relationships are so old that like these countermeasures of were developed by aphid predators to uh, defend against ants. Wow. Like what are some of those? Can you think of any of those? Oh, sure. So um, a great example is a ladybug. Right. Uh, ladybug loves to eat aphids. For those, um, for those of us who don't know, um, there are these tiny insects that live in gardens and on plants everywhere called aphids, and they have a mouth shaped like a straw, and they will stab a plant um, and drink the sap of that plant. And plant sap is mostly sugar. Right. So, so what the aphids poop out is sort of concentrated sugar. Yeah, I've seen those things on leaves. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay, because that's, like, that's how you can tell if you have aphids. Is you can see, a lot of times, if you can't see the aphids themselves, you see the, the little, little shits. Yeah, <laughs> and the stickiness and stuff. Yeah, the stickiness, the uh, dew. The dew. And mm-hmm. it's, of course, sort of euphemistically called, at least by ant nerds, honeydew. Oh. Aphid honeydew. Yeah, honeydew. And uh, the ants will collect that and uh, guard the aphids. Uh, But ladybugs, a beetle, ladybugs are a beetle, they love to eat aphids. And so the larvae and the adult ladybugs will come in and munch on aphids. And uh, ladybug has a few defenses. The first is its hemispherical shape. So if a ladybug is attacked by an ant, it will pull in all its extremities to under its hemisphere and pull itself tightly against the leaf surface that it's on. Right. So the ant will try to bite it, but its mandibles can't gain any purchase, and they keep glancing off the hard shell. That's incredible. And eventually the ant, ants have short attention spans, uh-huh. will give up and go do something else, and then the ladybug pops back up and uh, goes back to eating aphids. Holy shit. If that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't work for the ladybug. If it doesn't work for the ladybug. Uh-huh. Um, if anyone and anyone who's ever held a ladybug might notice this, that ladybugs give off a yeah. distinct sort of powdery, bitter smell. Mm-hmm. 
So these are chemicals in the blood that taste bad and smell bad, so that's its second line of defense. And the way it deploys them, this is really wacky. It has a, you know, insects have exoskeletons. Right. So in order to move, articulate, there has to be a, a break in the armor where there's like a soft membrane. Yeah. So what the ladybug does is basically clench really hard and it bursts the membranes in its leg joints and droplets of blood uh, come out. And that is what you're smelling. So it's the ladybug's blood. It's ladybug's blood. That's, That's correct. Insanity. If you <laughs> saw that on any sort of a bigger scale at all, even just like, like five times bigger, it would be you would be terrified. It would be like seeing like something from a science fiction movie or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. fucking incredible, man. Um, there's a. Can I say another one? Oh yeah, I mean, it's um, just crazy to think that that's what's going on. Uh, another great one is uh, so the lacewing. The lacewing is a delicate sort of green insect. With Those are cool bugs. Those are bugs that I thought were were bad for a long time. I only recently learned, like last year, like oh, these are good for the garden. These these aren't these aren't pests. Yeah, they're great for the garden. Mm-hmm. Um, very sort of weak adult insect with like these diaphanous rainbow oh, yeah. sheeny wings. Flies really slow, but the larva. So with. We tend to think of animals as like the adult stage does all the fun stuff and does the living and stuff like that. But a lot of times in insects, it's the larval stage that right. lives life to its fullest. It kicks ass. It's like a like a little tank, like a little uh, destructive little robot. Exactly. And this, this is a great example of that. The uh, lacewing larva um, prowls plants and has these long saber-like fangs okay. that are hollow. And it, it will find an aphid and just pierce it through the body and suck out the insides and then move to the next one. Like a, like a spider. Kind of like a spider. Okay. Um, and uh, it builds up this waxy uh, crust that it produces mm-hmm. on its back. So it looks like a sort of walking white waxy ball. Mm-hmm. And um, it protects against uh, dehydration to some extent, but also ants hate it like it totally baffles an ant's mandibles when an ant goes in to bite it it gets a mouthful of sticky wax wow and it like gets all distracted cleaning itself and trying to get the wax out of its body it's crazy so lacewing has another great uh defense that's almost like uh i know like a lot of fighting dogs like our dog has a super super thick neck huh it's like i guess that's an old thing where the neck dogs have a super thick neck because if you get bitten there there's too much skin to like it fills up the mouth and you can't get to the vitals. It's like, that's like a microscopic version of that kind of, it keeps them protected by, well, I guess it's a cooler thing. It's like if you were covered in goo, that's, that's so interesting. It's such a weird thing. Cause you wouldn't think it seems like, so, um, almost like, like, like a joke in a way, like, like a bunch of, if you're covered in goo gunk and it, th- it's enough to throw off the, the, this animal. So some other bugs, the way they throw off uh, ants. So ants really do dominate many different landscapes. And so you'll find a lot of things that at least have some type of interaction with ants. Yeah. Uh, there are many other insects that cover their bodies with um, dead ants or um, like the dead bodies of their victims. Right. And uh, they pass they pass undetected by ants because the ants think that they're just some dead 
you know, eaten husk. Yeah. And not a living creature. It's I've seen that on Naked and Afraid too, where the people who are getting eaten alive by bugs, they try to find ants and where they live and they smear them all over themselves because the stink of the pheromones, I guess, mm. drives off other insects or something like that. It's like a technique. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's a different different scale, obviously, but that's so funny that they would d- think to do something like that. Yeah, ants are, they, ants are just... There's so, there's, I just can never, can never get over just how fucking many of them there are. Like, the idea that they're just in all these environments everywhere all the time. And they're... But they all look kind of the same. <laughs> I mean, they all look so similar. That's the thing about ants that's always weird. Is they, they don't look that different, do they? In terms of their build. You're about to t- tell me that's I'm wrong. <laughs> I, <bet. laughs> um, I, I think that it's a case of scale. And uh, I would love to uh, show you some pictures at some point. I think if we look in a little bit closer, right. you'll be blown away by how different. Many ants do have a similar shape. Right. So very true. But... Um, the differences that ants can exhibit um, are almost beyond imagining. Really? Like, wh- like what's an example? Um, okay, so for example, uh, you may have heard of uh, trap jaw ants. Yeah. Um, these ants have the uh, long mandibles that uh, stick out in front of the face, mm-hmm. and uh, they will open up to a full 180 degrees oh, yeah. and uh, lock into little grooves um, in the side of the head. Um, and then... Uh, these giant muscles in the head uh, try to, are sort of pushing to shut the jaws, Mm -hmm. but the jaws won't shut because they're locked in little grooves. And uh, these trigger hairs stick out the front of the face, and when they touch these hairs to anything, but ideally a prey item, yep, tiny little muscles tap the jaws down out of the grooves. Uh, They snap shut at an incredibly fast rate. Probably one of the fastest things in the animal community, right? It's one of those things like like the pistol shrimp where it's this thing uh that's the fastest thing it's probably super fast right it's like incredibly fast it's incredibly fast it's a it's about rifle bullet speed and uh if you disturb a nest of these ants um and there are many different species which is very interesting Mm -hmm. and look at the nest at sort of eye level you'll see all these ants shooting up into the air because they're mad so they've cocked their jaws and then they're running into hard bits of wood or stones the jaws snap shut uh, reflexively, and the ant goes flying uh, quite a few inches backwards or up That's into the crazy. air. Yeah, yeah, and you can't, um, the ants are very poor climbers, so okay. you can have them in an open cup, but they will um, sometimes angle their heads down and eject themselves up out of the cup. And they, kn- they know what they're doing? Hard to know. Uh, could be they're attacking the cup. Yeah. But uh, it does appear... At least anecdotally, these ants will do that um, to launch themselves onto a, pre- onto a, a predator that's attacking right. the nest or to get away, anecdotally. Do those live in the United States at all? Yep, we have a few native species and uh, a number of introduced species as well that live in the United States. How come I've never seen anything like that before? How come you only see so few types of ants? Really? You said the Argentinian little, the little sugar ant things. You see, like, sometimes you see the big black ones moseying around, you know. How come there's so many of these type of ants that you just don't see normally? Even though we live in, like, a place that has, it's pretty damn diverse, you know. We have, like, it's pretty warm here, so there's all kinds of, like, action going on all the time. Is there a reason for that, you think? I do think. Um, I think that that the reason is that um, we have created a landscape 
for which nothing has evolved except for a few of the sort of tramp species. Okay. Uh, like the ants that we see, uh, we call them cosmopolitan ants or right. tramp ants. Tra I've never heard tramp. I don't think you said tramp before. That's such a, such a funny word, <laughs> tramp. Um, introduced species that kind of coexist with humans like pigeons or rats Yeah. wherever they spread around the planet, especially in sort of warm climates. Right, because they can like, they're basically living off of um, like people, they're living off of, how do you say it? Like, it's the same way rats, rats are everywhere because humans are everywhere, right? It's not like, there wouldn't be as many rats if there weren't so many humans. I've heard that said about like, because they're opportunists sort of, so like, it's like the ants that we see are opportunists, they're like tramps essentially like that, they're, they're like vagabonds, you mean? Yeah, sort sort of like that. They, um, they, contrary to what a lot of people think, ants are not generally problems in the home in terms mm -hmm. of eating food and stuff like that. Yeah, ants also aren't really vectors for disease. Okay, uh, they're very clean. Um, but uh, the ants, like the Argentine ants, follow us basically because we we have the heat and then we add the water. They come from Argentina. They come from Amazon river basins. Right. So. Um, they need the humidity which we provide and then they can make do on sort of our scraps the other sort of trampy bugs that live with us um tramps <laughs> uh, which was an acronym like telling real <laughs> analogous uh, i can't think of a good thing that's, that's a hard one tramp um, talking <laughs> talking right against management personas <laughs> <laughs> but just you know if we look even just looking on the street right now uh -huh. we can probably see plants from africa australia asia um the number of plants that we see that we might find here natively are are not very many not very many at all yeah and so um you're less likely to find native species in an environment like that because it's just not what they're adapted to. Their food sources aren't there. Yeah. So that's why we don't see as many much diversity is because the landscape, the environment's not as diverse. That's correct. You, you could go out um, to the desert, for example, mm -hmm. where the number of plants is far, far fewer, but the number of bugs that you'll find is far, far greater. That's so weird. That's all because it's just native landscape. Yeah. I mean, at least that's a very big factor. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, because I always think about that, how, like, there's just, um, I mean, I guess in a way it's kind of sad is that you think about just uh, how much the environment has been um, whittled down to the, the diversity has, go has gone from the landscape so much. Like, I saw something recently. They're talking about just the existence of COVID and how it started because, the net the wild landscapes are so much closer to human developments now so the the interplay between species that previously wouldn't exist is happening a lot more and that's how you get these crossover diseases where normally you'd never have a disease crossover between two species because they would never have any way to interact in a way that would cause that and how that's happening now because of so much encroachment and um also the the lack of diversity Lack of biodiversity causes that problem because there's normally like all these checks and balances that keep certain things from spreading or from becoming like a big, um, becoming, I don't know, like a, like a threat because they're not, it's not enough of it. Hmm. I, I'm wondering if there's, I mean, because you talk about, say how ants are super clean, they're everywhere. 
Like, has there ever been like a thing where people have tried to use ants to um, like stabilize an environment by introducing them, or is that something where it's like dangerous because it's like a thing where you can't know how they're going to interact with the environment until it's too late? So that's a really good question, um, to which I don't know the answer. I think people hopefully are sort of wise enough to predict that introducing some like introduced form of ant, yeah, you know, probably won't stabilize the environment if many, many, many other examples in history are any indication. What are some examples? I'm trying. To th- I know a few of them, but I feel like it's 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 like a cautionary tale, isn't it? Yeah, well, okay, so a famous one is the cane toads. Oh, yeah, those are terrible. Australia. Those were introduced? Those were introduced to Australia, But yes. what was it for? It was to stop something, right? It was to stop, um, to stop uh, the spread of the sugar cane beetle, which was attacking sugar cane oh. plantations. And now the cane toads are just, they're like a, a massive nuisance, right? They're, they're such a massive nuisance that uh, killing them sort of mechanically hasn't done much. They've evolved. <laughs> in the decades that they've been there to um, travel further, they they now have longer legs and can jump further than they wow. did when they were first introduced and cover more ground each year in yeah. their spread. Uh, they will they will eat uh, cane beetles if they happen to come across them, but they'll also eat e- everything. Mice, small, small dogs, dog food. Are you, they'll eat small dogs? Birds. Mm-hmm, a toad? A toad will? Yes. I didn't know. That seems insane. Because yes. that dog's pretty small and when you're lap. I don't think any toads are big enough to eat this dog. It would have to be a very small dog. Oh, a very dog. small dog. Okay. But yeah. still, any dog at all. And, Jesus. And probably their biggest problem besides, well, the sec tied maybe with the fact that they eat everything, snakes, lids, everything, yeah. is, is that um, they're highly toxic. Oh, they are. Venom, what kind of venom is it? So it's it's a poison that um, when when the toad is alarmed it will um, secrete poison from uh, glands on its back, uh-huh. and uh, that is lethal to a lot of things that um, eat the toad. Wow! Oh man! So it, that's why it's killing so many things. All these native lizards and snakes and other things that try to eat it. Dogs that pick up toads. Oh right, because it gets in its mouth and the dog is just playing with it and it bites the toad and it gets like a mouthful of. Of toxin. Mm-hmm. Damn, that's crazy. I don't think I knew that. That's, yeah, there's also, they have the problem with cats too, right? So it's like the cats and the toads Oh, in Australia, right? I, I hadn't heard, but I mean, cats seem to be everywhere. I, I think they introduced cats to try to take care of uh, mouse problems in the f- on farms. And they have these cats in Australia that are just, I mean, cats are problems all over the place. But I think in Australia, they have a specific problem with them because they, you know, they do what they do here. They just fucking kill everything. <laughs> they kill, like, songbirds. And they just kill all kinds of stuff. And they don't end up killing the thing that they were meant to kill because there's so much other stuff that's easier prey or some some crap like that. It's just one of those things where, like, oh, my God, this is insane. What a crazy place. Have you ever been there? No, I'd really love to go. It, feels like, it seems like a kind of place where if you go for, like, a biology reason, it just would be... You would be like, oh, my God, I've been here for two weeks. I, I, I don't you know, <laughs> feel like three seconds or something because it's just such a... A massively diverse place. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I quite frequently pick where to travel or decide where I'll be excited to travel based on the kinds of ants that are there. Right. And uh, Australia has incredible ants. What are some ants there that you can think about? Well, so the about? ants that I'd be um, 
really interested in playing with are the bulldog ants. Oh, that sounds like a cool name. Um, they are, and they're very cool ants. They, um, some of them are quite large. They're mm -hmm. over an inch long. Wow, that's really big. It's yeah. really big. Um, very sort of wasp-like. They have uh, long mandibles uh, that are clearly well-toothed, and then they have uh, extremely potent stings. And uh, wow. they're, they're very active predators. And in addition to this, they have um, really great eyesight. Um, and uh, some species, this is anecdotal because I haven't been there myself, okay. but some of my ant collecting friends have said that uh, ants, uh, guard bulldog ants, will stand on like high uh, plants or <laughs> fence posts or something to keep visual watch of intruders. That's and when they see you, come out to meet you. Like they'll greet, like, what are you doing here, motherfucker? <laughs> yeah, except that the, they'll skip the pleasantries. Wow. Like attack you? Mm-hmm. Like, well, like sting you and bite you? Sting you and bite you. And there's a, 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 a type of bulldog ant, which they call colloquially a jack jumper ant. Wow. Which um, is able to jump uh, kind of like a cricket. And so it can actually jump at you and then sting you. And uh, that ant in, in particular isn't just a painful sting, but uh, its stings cause unusually high rates of anaphylaxis. Okay, um, if you have like a specific sort of allergy or something like that, or no, it's does not dependent upon the person, or is it, how does it work? It's dependent upon the person. So most people, if they get stung, it will just hurt a lot, but mm -hmm. then they'll be okay. But uh, more people than for other stinging insects, is my understanding, will find out that they are allergic to this venom Jesus when they get stung Christ. by it. Christ. That's crazy. Man, Australia's messed up. <laughs> I feel like it's one of those places where it's always like that. That I always have this theory where there's like a coefficient between beauty and danger and how places that are like, I mean, obviously beauty's in the eye of the beholder, right? But places that are, I, I would say that, that Australia is empirically more beautiful than Minnesota. <laughs> I think that <laughs> Minnesota is much. Uh, if you if you discount the cold, Minnesota is a thousand times more safe than Australia in terms of venom and like things like that. And it seems like that's just sort of the. Maybe it was you telling me this, but someone was saying that they ex could explain that because places that are beautiful tend to have a lot of resources and so the competition for the resources is so fierce that animals develop these crazy defense mechanisms and attack mechanisms because of that or yes or they uh, don't have a lot of resources oh you know same kind of thing like think desert environments yeah um, you know what actually that makes so much more sense than what i just said i realized like oh wait minnesota has tons of resources it's got like you know all this fresh water and tons of like timber and just all this it's very rich with all kinds of stuff it's not and if you think about other places it's not the case really it's like yeah i mean but i guess you what about what about the jungle though the jungle has a lot of dangerous stuff right too well i mean that's it a goes great, both ways huh it goes both ways and here's an example of where sort of our evolutionary hindsight is always 2020 you know like an excellent reason for mm -hmm. why there are so many dangerous things in the jungle is because there's such great biodiversity and there's such intense competition. Okay. That even if there are tons of resources, um, which there often are in jungles, there are tons of things going after them. Yeah. So, so, so then you still have to fight things off. You still have to compete for resources. 
Yeah. It almost doesn't matter. Everywhere has... I guess I, I guess what I'm thinking about mainly is poisonous stuff. I feel like the poisonous stuff is what freaks people out the most. Like poisonous spiders, poisonous um, snakes. Those are, like, for most people, that's the thing that they're, like, scared of. I feel like that's, like, the, the layman thing to be like, oh, my God, this is scary. I think you're right. And those things tend to be tropical, don't they? For um, the most part? I don't know. There are tons in the tropics, yeah. but we've got, I think, like seven species of rattlesnake here in California. That's true. We got coral snakes. Yeah. We got recluses, widows, you know, but also tons of uh, poisonous snakes in the jungle. Right. Or like in, in uh, what, kind of, what areas of Africa where there's all those, like Africa and India, this, that's not where most people die from poisonous bites is India and Africa and stuff like that. That sounds right. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, they've got, co- they've got tons of really poisonous snakes there. Oh. Cobras are a, f- a famous example. Right. Have you uh, been around any snakes lately or in the past couple years? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a few snakes. You have a few snakes in here? I do. I have some oh, snakes cool. in here. Um, normally, I have uh, a classroom because one of the things right. I do is teach science. And it's, it's uh, just this sort of zoo, mm-hmm. really. And kids seem to like it well enough. You can walk into my classroom kind of on any day, and there'll be like a kid with a, a praying mantis on their face, right. a snake around their neck, uh, a walking stick on their notebook, something like that. So I try to have a very hands-on zoo. And during oh, yeah. the pandemic, a lot of the zoo has stayed with me. That's tough. I feel like that's a really difficult thing where that has to come back sooner as soon as possible. It's just that that hands-on learning stuff is just so – for me, it was like – I mean, that's the reason I'm into all this stuff because I got to do that when I was growing up. And the older I get, the more I'm like, oh, man, I was so lucky to be able to, like, interact with all these animals and see everything up close. Totally. There's no replacement for it at all. It also feels like it makes you um, – it gives you, like, an empathy for animals and plants and insects that you wouldn't have otherwise. I think that's hugely important. Yeah. Um, and since you sort of bring it up like that, one thing that I've sort of resolved this year is that uh, I need to be teaching much more about sort of environmental conscientiousness. Right. Um, and we, I'm working on a unit right now where um, the kids are residents of a town. Okay. And uh, they all represent... They all represent... Uh, different interests in the town um and the town there were native americans and the occasional missionary before the town came into existence Mm -hmm. but it was founded by uh people looking for gold prospectors okay and then uh, an environmental catastrophe an underground plume forces everyone to move and they have to make a new town but they're determined not to repeat the mistakes of the past okay and some of the students are representing animals um for part of what you just said, to try to build up empathy um, yeah. for, for animals and, you know, just things that don't have voices. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to think about that, yeah. Also, sometimes it seems like that maybe um, those things are, like, we think that they, we ignore them, but then in time they come back to be, like, a force that you can't ignore, <laughs> like like a snowstorm or something where it's just this thing where we've ignored animal species, and the next thing you know, it's like we're overrun with this problem, because, all because it's been just like 
put aside or treated like. I mean, you could even say that there's some people who think that maybe you could say that COVID is possibly a representation of that. It's like almost like a like a payback because of how it evolved, you know, of how of how supposedly it came about. It seems like if you, you could you could make the case, I think that that it's some sort of a biological. Um, revenge <laughs> on humans. It, it's a really interesting to mm-hmm. think about. I mean, the Earth does in many ways act like a living thing with mm-hmm. a circulata- circulation system and a respiratory system. Um, and uh, people do make the analogies that sometimes the Earth immune system is responding to an infection of humans. Yeah. It's kind of a, a neat, neat idea. Yeah, who knows, really? Or it could just be the simulation. It's just the version of the simulation that's uh, that's created this thing where it's like, wow, it's tr- it's trying to make it novel for people to wake up to be like, hey, this is all a joke, and it keeps doing all kinds of weird stuff, and we're still thinking it's real. Huh. Sometimes I think that when anything really weird happens, I'm like, oh, this is the simulation trying to communicate with us, telling us that to stop being so serious, because it seems like it's some some stuff happens like this is a, this is can't be real. Someone scripted this. It's too weird kind of thing i do wonder about stuff like that yeah if it is if it is true if like the answer ants have to be a, a component of that because it's there's i just keep going back to that because you're talking about how they're how they're everywhere they're like in every environment and there are so many of them they're so massive it's almost like if they're like a if they're the programmers or if they're just the i don't know there's something weird to them about that because also i mean even though you're saying how they all look different like when you think about an ant such a simple thing. You have like the the head, the the middle. Uh, what is it called? The thorax. The thorax. The head, the thorax, and the abdomen. That's three things. And you have three legs on one side and three on the other. It's almost like this. If you, it's like a numerological, like three, 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 <laughs> and it's very distinctive. You can see it. It has like a hexagonal shape. If you if you want to like go crazy and get all high and stuff and think about it. You could kind of make it be like these are these is, these are alien messengers or something because they have so, there's such a um, like the idea of anything I feel like anything that has a number three attached to it is such a a point of stability right this is like the idea of like I don't know there's something interesting to think about ants in terms of just how many of them there are and the fact that they are so distinctive like any any person that oh that's an ant like if you ask. There's almost no one I we could talk to who couldn't identify an ant. Very true. And that's something about that I feel like that's different than because suppose spiders is like oh is that a spider you don't know because they have eight legs or some spiders don't have eight legs what they do. Both ants it's always that thing like oh that's an ant that's an ant you know. Mm-hmm. Though there are many spiders that mimic ants mm-hmm. that uh, will walk on six legs. Really. And hold the front pair of legs out in front like, like a pair feelers? of antenna. Yes. That's funny. Do you think smarter spiders are smarter than ants individually? I do um, because it, it seems like predatory things um, always have to be kind of like a little smarter or yeah. they just don't last. You know, the, there's definitely sort of like a, an arms race, almost like a cold war mm-hmm. between predators and things avoiding predators. Right. So it's a classic we call cat and mouse, right? It's like a <laughs> yeah. It's just it's literally that. It's that, but different. It's spider and ant or something like that. So so in general, predators need to outwit um, prey. Mm-hmm. And so if they haven't evolved 
sort of or developed a new way to outwit prey, then they stop existing. Yeah. Right? They don't eat anymore. Their lineage is done. So I think that's sort of conducive to like, I don't know if we can call it intelligence, but if we can, slightly higher intelligence. Yeah. Are there examples in the insect community of, of, of insects that have become extinct because they could not, um, they couldn't evolve to be a better predator or better prey? Yeah. Um, there are lots of examples. Um, I, I don't know too many examples. We have some butterflies that um, are going extinct because of habitat loss, okay. stuff like that. But as far as like, I don't know about any that went extinct because they couldn't outwit um, prey. Because that stuff, that's like more fossil record kind of stuff, right? Because that would have to be before humans became such a dominant fixture in most environments to find that out. What's that called? Is that called like paleozoology or something? Paleozoology. Is that what that's called? Could uh, certainly I would know what you meant if you said (laughs) that. Yeah, like old plants, paleo, old animals, paleozoology, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But that that has isn't that a thing? I remember someone reading somewhere that there's you know there's always stuff going extinct, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But um, someone was saying how yes, that's true, and it's not good that humans cause things to go extinct either through hunting or habitat loss or however we've impacted the landscape but also naturally in the world things are always going extinct and new life forms are constantly emerging like it's a constant thing where um things are coming and going that's definitely true though it's it's definitely not balanced at least these days right um there are way more things that are disappearing than than are appearing yeah but there are some really interesting uh, things that are appearing because of uh, uh, humans. Like there's a type of bird in London um, that was a, a common bird in England. I'd have to look up the name of the bird. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. But uh, the, the ones that live in the city have taken to calling in the early morning before the, the city wakes right. up. Whereas the other members of the species um, would call midday. And so what we're seeing is sort of, you know, incipient speciation potentially and something like that. So it's almost like a, a subspecies? Right. Um, but you could imagine that um, a couple decades of that, and even if you put these two po- populations of birds together, because they'd be looking for mates at different times of day, they would not interbreed, and that would be budding speciation happening right there. So speciation is the creation of a species? Is the creation of a, a new species, yes. Wow, so not even a subspecies, a, a different species. Right. Well, species is a difficult word. Okay. Because for the most part, people can't agree on what it means to be a different species. Okay. I thought it was, uh, it means that the animals can interbreed. Well, so the only definition that everyone seems to agree with mm-hmm. is that uh, if the animals can breed with one another, and then those offspring themselves can reproduce. Okay. Um, then those things are considered the same species. Got it. Um, however, A, a lot of times we can't do those types of experiments. Mm-hmm. For example, you can't get ants to breed in the lab. You can't? No, you can't. Almost what do you mean? no ants. Almost no ants will breed in captivity. Why? Th- there's this whole mysterious Holy shit. cycle uh, to ant reproduction that... Uh, we have yet to crack. 
They don't know. Yeah, we don't know how to mimic it. So we wow. know. So uh, ant, ants, um, the way, can we talk for a second about how ants reproduce? Yeah. Okay, cool. It's really cool. Are you getting warm? No, I was just, uh, try, I'm just, I'm not warm at all. I'm perfectly good. Okay, cool. More, it's more like my eyes are, I get sense them taking my sunglasses on and off because I don't want to, it's bright. But I'm, it's bright everywhere for me all the time. Uh, okay. So, yeah. As long as you're comfortable. I'm we good. can make adjustments. Totally good. All right, so. Ants. This is one of my favorite topics right here. Ant breeding. Ant reproduction. <laughs> Truly a remarkable thing. So um, as we may have discussed last time, the, the ant situation is almost 100% female. Oh, right. I forgot that. Yeah, that's so crazy. I totally forgot that, but I remember that again. Yeah, they're almost all females, huh? Damn. Yeah, and all the workers are female, and mm-hmm. sometimes people call ants soldier ants. Mm-hmm. That's just a class of worker, also female. Um, males in... Almost 100% of the ant species are just sort of made for mating, and mm-hmm. after they mate, they die. That's their only role. Uh, if a, and, and so what happens is when a colony gets sort of mature enough that instead of only taking in resources to grow, called the ergonomic stage, it migrates into something called the reproductive stage, okay. where it starts uh, diverting some of its resource intake to produce sexual forms of ants to produce males and virgin queens okay so it produces um these virgin queens these generally big mama ants with wings Mm -hmm. and males which are generally like frail can't do any work can't (laughs) feed themselves really sort of lame looking um also with wings and then sort of the the textbook way that ants reproduces on a certain day of the year or a certain like sequence of days of the year that we can't determine, all of the ants of a given species will literally force their winged forms out of the nest at the same time. Um, and these winged forms, which have been spending months underground just loading up on calories. Right. This is the male uh, and the female. Male and the female. Okay. Once they experience uh, the, the breeze, uh, see the sunlight, or if it's a nocturnal species, see the moonlight, that triggers them to fly. Mm-hmm. And then flying triggers them to mate so for all the people who study ants it's pretty rare that you ever actually see ants mating wow um after they mate typically the male dies uh in some cases i believe the act of mating kills him that is the case for some hymenopterans like he'll leave some important part of himself in there oh like a bee stinging and dying after it stings kind of thing yes yes kind of like that um and uh or the male will die of predation or starving to death over the next few days. Uh, the female lands, and she tears off her wings, never to fly again. And uh, she goes and she excavates a cell um, in the medium of her choice, depending upon her species. For some, it's wood. For some, it's soil. Uh, there, she will seal herself off mm-hmm. and uh, start laying eggs. And uh, she will slowly, over the course of the next couple of months, metabolize herself uh, to, regurgit- to uh, regurgitate to feed the developing eggs. Okay. And uh, by the time, this, this process will take uh, several months, and uh, she has to cannibalize some of her young to feed the other young. Wow. Um, and if she, she is successful in raising her first batch of workers, which are the smallest possible size that a worker can be, mm-hmm. um, they're called nanitic workers, the smallest possible size, um, if she gets to this point and the vast majority of them do not, uh, 
and we can talk about why because it's really cool. Then she's almost dead by this point, mm -hmm. like really starving. You can see in her movements, she's weak and uncoordinated. Yeah. She's largely hollow and will remain so for the rest of her life. And she's now relying on these tiny little ants to go out and get food, feed her, um, and give her enough energy to um, get her strength back and start laying eggs. Um, wow. And then the cycle will repeat itself. And when the colony gets big enough, they'll make new reproductives and begin the cycle anew. It's like StarCraft. It's, I don't know what StarCraft is. It's a video game. Uh, it's like the, there's, a, there's a certain race, or not race, I guess. I guess they call it race, but they're called zerglings, but they're kind of like insects. But you start off with just a few, and you have to be successful enough to – you have to get minerals and get stuff to create more. But if you don't get enough – if you don't get minerals and Vespian gas, you can't recreate more zerglings. I mean, it's it's the same thing. It's just – Everything is the same. I feel like <laughs> the, more you, the more you look, everything's the goddamn same. And that's just—it's just ants. Yeah, that's so crazy. Um, yeah, and so like um, studies have been done that showing that like a uh, fewer than one percent of queens that leave a mother nest are successful in starting new nests. When they mate, are they mating with the male that came from their same nest? Or are they trying to find a male from a different nest? Great question. Um, we believe that the fact that they fly and then mate is some sort of means to increase the chances that they're not mating with a male from their own nest. To diversify the, the genes, gene Re pool? Correct. Um, but they will also sometimes mate with males from their own wow. nest. So when you say that um, there's stuff that they don't know, what is that they don't, that scientists don't know about the, man, <laughs> the ant mating? So what we've been unable to recreate is the circumstances that make um, the winged ants in the nest want to leave the nest right. and run around and fly and then mate. Yeah. yeah. Some, sometimes, sometimes we've had some success by sort of releasing them into a large room, preferably yeah. with like bright light or sunlight, and letting them fly all around the room. Um, and sometimes they'll mate in that case, as, uh, case but like uh, the carpenter ants that I'm going to put in there. Right. As far as I know, uh, nobody has successfully done that with carpenter ants. No one's had them successfully coax them to reproduce. Correct. So the queen, once they have a queen, the queen will lay eggs that turn into workers and that will even turn into the uh, sexual forms of the ants, uh -huh. the virgin queens and males. But that's where it stops. And those virgin queens and males won't mate. It's like the pandas. The pandas won't mate. See, my theory behind the pandas, this is my, you know, my stoner stoner biologist thought, is that the reason the pandas won't mate is because the pandas are basically telling the world, that like, oh, we are done being a species. We're like, we're like, it's time for us to be reabsorbed back into the cosmos and some new animal will emerge. Because, I mean, obviously, the pandas are in danger for reasons besides that. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they refuse to mate under the best conditions, that's what I always thought was that maybe it's this thing where, yeah, pandas don't want to be, pandas are done being pandas. They're like, they're not, they're done. <laughs> like they're, they're going into the light kind of thing. But I doesn't think that's make sense really with, interesting. But it doesn't make sense with ants, does it? Because the ants are like, I mean, they're, it's different because they're in captivity. They're just, there's like a, it's like tr truffles, right? Where we can't figure out how to grow truffles in a lab either because there's like these conditions mm. that exist underground that are 
we just don't know what they what we're missing when we have the lab set up. It's, it's like is it kind of like that? You think? I think it could be. Yeah. Because pandas have everything they need. Essentially, they give them, like these massive habitats and they have all the stuff they need, but they seem to be and they're happy, but they don't want to mate. I think I think that the way to get uh, ants to mate in the lab, if that's what you're trying to do, mm-hmm. is uh, have a colony where the conditions so match the native conditions of the colony that maybe you would have some type of outdoor colony, which some people do. They'll keep okay. an ant farm um, of a native species. You want to do this with a local species. Right. Otherwise, you... <laughs> right. And, and, and then you let the ants go out and do their own foraging, get their own food. Right. Um, they're they're very photosensitive, so they'll the colony will behave differently depending upon the amount of light in the day, the amount of heat in the day, the amount of humidity in the day. Yeah, and then maybe have like a large screened-in area so that they can push out their reproductives on their own, and the reproductives can fly within the screened-in area. Maybe. Yeah. So at some point, it's not really even a lab; it's, it just happens to be a containment of an environment right. that's ex- already existing. So right. Yeah, because I guess you just can't really replace. There's certain things. Like, you can't really replace them, can you? Like, moonlight probably, I mean, who knows? We know what it is, but we just don't know exactly what it is, I guess. And, you know, maybe it's like a, maybe that's like their version of romance. You mm-hmm. know, like humans won't really. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it's like this thing you can't put a, you can't put a price on it. You can't. It just exists. It's like the thing when the when the when the prince falls in love with the with the the we call it the nursemaid or like someone like the pauper. It's like why are you in love with this person? Like, I just am. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't like uh, reproduce it because it doesn't. It's not actually a thing. It's like an essence. Maybe that certain panda je ne sais quoi is yeah. just absent from the San Diego Zoo. Or maybe it's because they're being watched. It's like that that thing where you just can't. It's like what is that called? The observer effect. Mm-hmm. That to me is so interesting. The idea of that. I mean, how does that work again? It's isn't it that you can't by observing something you are in, you are impacting the thing you're observing. Is That's that correct. Is? Okay. That that the mere act of observation impacts the thing that you are observing. Man, I want to see like you know, hundred years, five hundred years from now how that is broken down in a way where, like, there's so many things that, what's the Arthur, Arthur C. Clarke quote where he says that um, a significantly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic and how there's all these things now that we don't understand. I guess we know enough to know that it's not magic. It's probably just something we don't understand. But it's there's th- those things like that where I wonder what will be learned in the future about that's going on between these insects that is, for us, we just don't understand what it is. And it seems like it's magic, even though we know it's not magic, because, I mean, we think it's not magic, at least. some of us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I I wonder what that kind of stuff is going to be. Because when you told me that stuff about, we were talking about earlier, like what the the insects being able to communicate or be able to do these weird things with their bodies that make sounds and stuff. To me, that kind of stuff is just so... Like, that involves so much technology to, to, to know about that, right? Because you have to be, have these mics that are super sensitive. You have to be able to, like, observe the things at the same time without disturbing them in a way that you can tell that this is the cause and effect of the action. Like, that kind of stuff, I can't imagine how you'd set up an experiment like that. It seems, like, really difficult. And that would be 
you wouldn't be able to do that 50 years ago. You wouldn't be able to do that very long ago because it's technology-based, right? Some of that stuff is or no? No, I think so. I, I, I think that definitely many of our advances in science are dependent upon the technology that we've evolved yeah. uh, from other advances in science. Yeah, when you hear that, hear that stuff, it's just crazy to me that we can even, the fact that we can even know that's going on, like when you tell me that stuff, it's like, how do they possibly, how can you know that? How can you even tell that's what's happening with the ladybug, like, like it's doing that? That to me is, is almost as amazing as the, actual, the act itself, the fact that we found that out, like that someone was able to observe that and actually deduce that's what was happening. It, it's, I mean, um, there are people who have spent like their whole careers, you know, chemically analyzing micro micro amounts like picograms of chemical mm -hmm. that are given off by insects to try to see what what types of things are in there yeah i can't imagine how complicated it must be totally me either are there other symbioses that we haven't talked about that are that you know about that you can you can uh describe oh my gosh yeah uh so um there are many great symbioses. I love talking about ants. Is that a problem? That oh, I, keep I don't talking? think it's a problem. <laughs> okay. That'd be cool if it was, though. <laughs> um, so, so you brought up earlier um, that uh, like there are plants that coax ants to live on them. Mm -hmm. um, and that's absolutely true. And in fact, it goes like way, way deeper than that. Wow. So... Um, Ant, there are many, many ant species. Um, the, the exact numbers we're not too sure about, but somewhere between 10 and 20,000. Okay. And um, a lot of their sort of uh, diversification seemed to happen around the time uh, that flowering plants arose. Oh, and th wow. That's, that also coincides with, like, tremendous uh, plant diversification. Oh, yeah. And um, Is that angiosperms? Angiosperms. <sighs> Great word. <laughs> And uh, ants, um, so ants are like extremely predatory, aggressive little creatures. They mm -hmm. don't eat wood uh, like many people think. They just, some nest in it. Termites eat wood. Ants do not eat wood. Um, and so many, many plants um, enlist ants to help them. And so they'll have those nectaries, like what you were saying, where they um, secrete uh, sweetness that the ants will come and collect and then guard the plant. But some take it much further. Uh, like there's a certain um, acacia tree that attracts uh, pseudomyrmicine ants to come and live on it. And they live in its thorns, which are hollow. Wow. Um, and the acacia plant grows these little orange nodules called belchian bodies, which um, the ants eat almost exclusively. They have a lot of protein. They have mm -hmm. a lot of nutrition. And they sting the dickens out of anything that comes to the plant. They will clip uh, encroaching plant branches like gardeners like gardeners like and weeds uh, you can actually um in some cases you can come to uh, a small treeling in the middle of a forest and it looks like someone's been manicuring the lawn around it that's insanity because the ants have been uh keeping it like that and there there are plants that have evolved to mimic ant pheromones to attract ants to come and live in them right there are also uh, plants that have evolved to um special houses in them that act as the nest, like they, they make rooms and chambers in their own body that the ants come and nest The plant in. does. The plant does. What kind of plants are these? Um, so there's a great one called, uh, 
Um, gosh, it's been a minute, but it, it makes these pods that um, make, it's this beautiful vine with this little pink flower. It makes these pods uh, and it attracts the ants to come live in them. Do you know where this is in the world? Um, no, I've had some of these plants before, okay. but I can't accurately say. Uh, we, but we even have, and this occurs uh, in many places in the world, in, including here in this country, uh, some plants uh, practice this process called uh, uh, myrmacochery or myrmacochery okay. or myrmacochery, and what they do is they produce seeds where the seed develops this like very attractive either protonaceous or fatty node on the seed. Okay. And so an ant will pick up a seed, seeing it as food, bring it home, and uh, bring it underground, and then eat that bit and discard the seed in the refuse pile. Um, and ants, ant nest soil is extremely rich in nutrients that uh, plants need, and so then the seed will sprout in that refuse pile. Okay. And... Um, Many, many, many plants, especially flowering plants, rely on this method to disperse themselves. So when you say myrmacocia, is that what does that word mean? Because you said a couple times like the myrma, the certain ant starts with myrma, or are you saying like, is that a type of ant, or is that like a, is that like a, what do you call it, a, a prefix that means something like, does that mean something? So myrma means ant. Oh, okay. All right, right, right. Okay. So those are, those are, that prefix means like of and or pertaining to ants. Got it. Often, yes. And so like a, there's, there's a genus of ant called, uh, you know, Myrmacina. Okay. Uh, there's a group of ants called Myrmacines. There's a, a genus of ant called Pseudomyrmex because it sort of looks like an ant, but it actually looks way different from most ants. Wow. Um, uh, formica is another ant prefix that you'll often hear. So there's okay. another big family of ants called the, the Forma signs. Um, Why is that tile called Formica then? You think they just stole that from ants? I don't know. I've wondered about <laughs> That's that. That's funny. It's a trademark name, right? It's a registered trademark, Formica. It's like saying Tyvek or like, uh, um, what's that shit they put on pans? Um, Teflon. Teflon. It's like Teflon. Formica. One, I've, <laughs> I've always wondered about that because... The, there is a genus of ant called Formica, uh -huh. and the abdomens of these ants are tend to be like densely covered in these like fine golden or silvery hairs. It's got to be it. Which make the abdomen glint in the sunlight and just like really beautiful and reflective. And so, wow, that's kind of how Formica table tops are. Yeah, I wonder. That's weird. Who knows? Maybe there was some ant person who was like a, way back when was also into countertops. Yeah, right. That's funny. <laughs> so you're saying these ants, they, they take the seeds and they disperse them and stuff like that. That's so crazy the, that they do that. Well, maybe when you said that, when you're talking about the, the soil being super rich, it made me think about, you know, you do people do like worm bins and stuff and compost piles. How come there's never anything like, like you have ants create like a, a rich soil for you? Is that, I've never heard of that before, but it seems like it's something that would be like a good thing to do. I think it would. I, th I think that ants are sort of less understood. That uh -huh. could be part of it than other things. Um, you can't really contain ants very well. They yeah. sort of need to do their... You couldn't have them uh, uh, make rich soil in a box 
and then take that soil without disturbing that's true the ant nest type of thing right but you know when i make uh, terrariums i often will put small ant colonies in there really? to recycle nutrients and stuff like that and yeah because they're kind of like they do a lot of stuff right because they eat they're almost like a multi they, they're like digesters too aren't they they are ants are also less they do many good things for the garden. They eat predators. Right. They aerate the soil. They bring a lot of nitrogen into the soil. Uh, they disperse seeds. Mm -hmm. So for those reasons, they're all really great to have in the garden. Yeah. Um, but some of them will, as we were talking about, tend aphids, which harm plants, mm -hmm. or tend scale insects or mealybugs, which harm plants. Yeah. And uh, so it's less obvious how ants are in the garden. Generally, I'd say they're great. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they hurt plants, too. Ants don't eat plants directly almost ever. Oh, really? Right. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. They're mostly carnivorous. Okay. Uh, but some will also do the aphid farming, and some mm -hmm. are very specialized predators. Yeah, because anytime I've ever had ants in the garden, well, people used to freak out about them in the community garden. But usually it was because they were, like, they had taken up a space i think it was because people probably weren't watering a certain area and it was dry enough where they could establish themselves like in the corner of the bed usually mm -hmm. so we find them and i would just tell people like oh if you just water that a bunch they'll go away and it's usually the case isn't it because they don't they don't like it when it's super wet right like at least the ants those argentinian ants it seems like they don't want it to be like um they can't hang out and it's that if it's that wet right yeah it's a way to get rid of them by flooding them uh but that said um there's a there's a pretty good chance that the ants aren't actually harming yeah. the plants at all in that case. Right, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I think if when you talk about earlier about the uh, whole like the queen inside the um, the log, mm -hmm. is that something where like if you like, you know, because as a kid you always like bust open rotten logs or anything like that, and you see like this little, see like little eggs sometimes, and you see like a little fuzzy cocoon type thing, is is that probably and uh, what we're talking about earlier, like, like a queen ant that's trying to establish a new colony, you think, when you see something like that in a log? So there's a decent chance that it is. Um, but if you open up a little cavity and find a, an egg or some cocoons, you'll generally find the queen right there. Okay. If she's trying to start a nest. Queens are very good at absconding if they have to mm -hmm. and finding some place to hide or run away. But um, if you find a bunch of eggs and there's no ant there, there's a decent chance that it wasn't from an ant because uh, okay. the eggs have to be tended to constantly. Uh, one of the things the ant will do is uh, lick them constantly to remove mold spores mm -hmm. to prevent uh, any infections from starting wow. the egg clutch. They're busy. They're busy. That's crazy, man. There's so much stuff about this that I feel like, it, like you can kind of talk about it endlessly, it seems like. Like there's just... Uh, yeah, every time, every time you say it's one thing, it makes me think about some other aspect of it. Like I, just, I just keep thinking about like compost and how like there's, um, I don't know, there's got to be some place for ants in the compost world. I feel like I want to like start some, some new form of ant composting where you find like you just throw a couple ants in there and they come back in two weeks and it's done. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? If you could control ants somehow, if you could find a way to like uh, – I control them. God, it would be such a great resource. It would be like a crazy resource if you could have some sort of control over ants, like like a drone. If you could um, somehow find a way to do that, that would be the coolest thing ever. Just so you could just throw some fucking ants at a project. Like, they'll build a house for you in two weeks. 
I just read an awesome sci-fi book called Children of Time. Okay. Um, and uh, basically, it's it takes place in our distant future, and humans are trying to um, colonize new planets. And the the first stage of this is setting up an ecosystem. So they're right. basically starting these chain reactions that set up ecosystems and new planets. Uh, and I, I won't give much away, but just uh, in one place where they try this, the norm normally this virus is used and it's put in monkeys and basically the monkeys are supposed to evolve into humans okay. very quickly. But something goes wrong, all the monkeys die, and the virus that causes like sped up evolution lands in uh, spiders instead. Oh, Jumping this my, spiders. This is like, this is, oh man, that sounds like my, like a, my dream. One of my dream. I mean, one, not, not like a dream I can actually realize, but in a perfect world, I would have a jumping spider the size of your dog, like a chihuahua, as a pet. Awesome. That's, how, that's <laughs> like how big they are here. And jumping spiders, again, it's hard to ascribe intelligence to things, but jumping spiders act smart. Like they act they like seem, little dogs. Yeah, they yeah. seem way more sort of perceptive than other creatures, uh, other spiders. And one of the things they do is they um, learn how to control ants. Wow. And they use the ants to build cities and all kinds of things, just like you said. That's crazy. Yeah, they're, they're, so, they're such interesting creatures. I feel like, I don't know, there's something about jumping spiders that is just, when you look at them, you almost feel like they're looking back because those eyes are those big, those two big eyes in the front. It's kind of human, humanoid, you know what I mean? Sometimes they are. And what's crazy is that if you uh, look at those eyes, like in the right light up super close, you'll see that there are these like lenses moving behind them mm -hmm. and they're not moving in concert at all. You have like some moving oh. side to side, some <laughs> moving up and down. Like they're moving in different directions at once. It's, yeah. it's really wild. They also move like they're like they're there's a strobe light going that you can't see. You know, they move so fast. If you had if you could see one of those that would be the size of like a pager or something, could you imagine like seeing that thing jump from here like to the top of a like a fifty foot telephone pole, like just boom like in a blink? Amazing. They're just so, yeah, they're so fast and crazy like that. But it's such an interesting, interesting animal. And they're not like, I feel like they're not like other spiders. They don't tend to freak out people like other spiders do. They don't. It's commonly kept pet spider for that reason. Yeah. Have you heard of the genus Portia, the Portia jumping spiders? No. So these are jumping spiders that specialize in preying on other spiders. Oh, wow. And they um, do it in a few ways. Um, they'll perform these calculations to see where a spider like if there's a spider in a web there they'll you'll see them looking around seeing where they need to go to get to that spider and then they'll walk up to a spot always checking like their position relative to the yeah. spider and then like slowly descend down on a thread over the spider and then drop and pounce on it and eat it or so checking the angles checking the angles um, and a lot of research has been done to show like how good they are at processing like spatial awareness. Yeah. Um, or what they'll do is they'll go up to the edge of a web and start vibrating it and mimic an insect mm -hmm. trapped in the web. And then when the spider goes to investigate, then they pounce on it. Wow. I've never seen that before. I would love to see that. That would be some of those things where I would love to see, be able to see that, you know? Remember, remember the first time I ever threw a, an insect in a web and it actually worked? I was like, oh my God, I just fed the spider. I didn't think you could actually do that. And, how cool that was, but to be able to do, to see a spider, even another spider would just be, oh my God, that'd be insane. I can't imagine getting to see something like that. Have you ever seen that? 
that that I've only seen videos of. Okay. Um, but I've seen jumping spiders do some pretty amazing stuff. Weasel, enough. <laughs> Weasel. Um, and I, actually, I have a colleague who breeds Phidippus uh, jumping spiders. Which really? you know the jumping spiders around here that are like big and black with like yeah, the Phidippus audix. Ah, cool. Yeah, that's the one. That's the, I mean, it's the it's the entry level Phidippus, I believe, right? Phidippus <laughs> audix. It's the black and white stripes. Yep. Yeah. I saw one on a plant I bought once, and I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. I hung out for a while, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, yeah, I know about jumping spiders now. You know, Phidipisodics, Phidipisodics, yeah, I'm kind of a – and that's, you know, like one of a thousand types. But the Phidipis genus is pretty damn cool, I think. That's I like think a, so, too. He breeds them? Yeah, he breeds them. How big of a th- container do you have to have to have one of those as a pet? That's a good question. My guess is not very big. Because I think I'm going to get one of those now. You know, like a – cream cheese container or something he has a <laughs> cream cheese yeah there's actually a company now that makes spider breeding boxes wow I, I can forward you that link that sounds good I heard about it and then sent it to him and he uses them now I think but you know you in general you can only keep one spider right per cage what would be cool is to do is to have them and have it in the garden that was always my dream is to have just a bunch of spiders living in the garden, like garden, keeping guard of your, of your um, your crops, basically. You know, we talked about that last time about those how those wasps I have, which haven't come back yet. I wish they would come back, but they how they just decimated all the pests in my garden. I had no problems with anything because those wasps are just fucking eating the shit out of any kind of pests. And how it'd be so cool to have that again, or to have have like a you know a team of spiders that are just constantly. Just taking everything down. Uh, absolutely. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a good chance the wasps will return. They're seasonal. Thank God. I know. Yeah. I, I This is my first year here, so I don't know if they'll come here. Mm-hmm. I'm really hoping they do. I put a little, see that little house up in the bushes over oh, there? Oh, yeah, yeah, that? yeah. That's like one of those solitary bee uh, things, right? Yeah. I'm hoping that solitary bees are in the central part. It's mm-hmm. more like a big cavity. Right. Maybe some of our paper wasps, that we, our beloved paper wasps, will nest in there. And these are just prime. Prime. The eaves, yeah. yeah most people not, would knock them off. I'll be right. like, yes. Yeah, because they always want to go like, oh, it's right above the door where people come in. But they might, there's, there's some prime spots for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adam, is there anything you want to talk about before we, before we uh, close up? I feel like um, I think anything you're thinking about, like, oh, we got to talk about this. Let's see. It's cool if not. I, I, I mean, you know, one thing that I just, I feel like maybe I could just justify a little okay. why I'm so into ants. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll, I'll end with that, I guess, is that, uh, you know, with all the different kinds of ants that there are and some that uh, work together extremely well, mm-hmm. um, some that are always trying to exploit one another, some that are trying to uh you know, take advantage of one, one another. Within the vast spectrum of sort of ant species, we can find analogs for what seems like any of the different ways that we uh, run a business or govern ourselves right. or use resources. And sometimes it's hard to see a pattern when you are a piece of that pattern. Uh-huh. But if you can see your same pattern in miniature, it can give you some really good predictive insight about how well your strategy is going to work. And that's one of the things I love about ants is that they can show us what is all around us anyways, but it just might be a little more obscured in other systems. Somebody